You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating with Rachel Heinemann. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and certified eating disorder specialist. On this weekly podcast, we talk about all things psychoanalysis and eating disorder recovery. It's a combination of interviews with experts in psychoanalysis and eating disorders and some solo episodes where it will just be the two of us. The goal of the podcast is to help you try to understand a little bit more about yourself, gain a deeper understanding for why you do the things you do, and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. Hey, 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 episode 97. I'm really, really excited for today's episode. Today's episode is a solo episode because it is the first of its kind. And what I mean by that is here at UDE, we have been doing episodes that revolve around anything related to deep work therapy and eating disorder recovery and everything in between or sort of related. This episode is directly geared to the clinician. So if you're somebody who either treats eating disorders or let's be honest, who of us doesn't have somebody in their practice that at least has some sort of disordered eating, whether you're a dietitian or a therapist or a prescribing provider or really any medical provider, I'm hoping that you've gotten a ton out of the podcast thus far. I know some of you have the ones that have reached out directly. Thank you for that. And by the way, as an aside, always do. I look forward to that. I love getting your feedback. But this is the first episode that I am recording directly talking to you as the clinician. And what we're hoping for this round of UDE to do a lot more of this. So if you're a clinician and you have specific questions or just topics that you're interested in learning about, send them over to me because as part of our intermittent series directly for clinicians, I will be sure to at least stick it in. So send your feedback over. You might remember an episode that we did a bit ago about what to do when it's not working out with your therapist. And basically what we were talking about is if you are the client and it's not working out or you don't like something that they did or it's just really not fitting, what do you do and how do you do it and how do you address it? What I think we don't talk often enough about is what you are on the receiving end of that. What if you are the therapist and they're coming in and giving you the feedback that they don't really like what you're doing or they didn't like what you did this one time or that's it, I'm done. What do you do when you receive feedback? like that, especially something that you don't like or is hurtful. Now, as clinicians, we have an obligation to explore whatever the person in front of us is bringing up with zero personal stake. And I'm not saying to remove ourselves personally from the situation. We are not robots by any means, and we are not meant to be. If you talk to a lot of relational folks, We actually use our presence within the relationship as something that is particularly valuable. But what I mean by zero stake is the kind of reactions that we might have in our personal life, the angry ones, the hurt ones, and then we sort of either 
taken out or just sort of get heightened, that's something that we really have to leave at the door as clinicians. I say that with the full understanding that this is almost impossible sometimes. It's like this biological response when someone says something that really makes us angry or really offends us or hurts us. It's like asking somebody to be an angel to be like, oh, oh, that's so interesting. Like, let's explore that as opposed to, well, F you, which might be our natural response. But I just want to reiterate that that is our obligation because this is not a typical relationship. You are a therapist. You are a psychiatrist. You are a doctor. You are a dietitian. You are fill in the blank to this person. And if there is nothing else, whenever this person gets angry, this is more of the relational end, they have gotten a certain response. Now we have a valuable opportunity, besides for all the other things that go into this, we have a valuable opportunity to try to explore what happens for this person when they get angry, when they get frustrated, when they get hurt. And if we can somehow miraculously put our feelings aside and engage in this curious exploration, we can move mountains for this person. We can really understand how their anger really mobilizes something in them, really makes them get mean or really makes them get quiet or shut down or whatever happens. This is not an opportunity that anybody ever, ever gets. And so when they come through your doors, if you can be the person to try to at least open the door of exploring what happens when they get angry or hurt or frustrated, it can be transformational for them. And I also completely understand that we are talking about this and so often talk about this in the abstract. But when you're sitting there in the moment, it is so, so different. We can read papers. We can talk about it in supervision. We can talk about it in group supervision. We can learn about it. We can listen to podcasts like this one. But when you're in the room and someone is going off at you, all of this might go out the window. So what I'm hoping for is that we talk about this enough. And sometimes, especially if you have the pleasure of working with a lot of people who might get this way, then you have the experience over and over and over again. But this often takes years and years of talking about literally the same thing with a different patient over and over and over again for this to penetrate and actually feel like something that's doable. So to normalize the fact that when somebody is angry with you or somebody brings up termination in an angry way, that it is so natural for us as clinicians, we are humans, to have all of our feelings. It is natural to be shaken up, to be offended, to not be able to engage with this. And the hope is that over time, once you get used to it, and once you understand a little bit more of how you respond in these situations, you can get better and better and better at this. Now, (laughs) obviously, I'm speaking from personal experience. Well, maybe not obviously. But I think that, you know, over time, starting from when I was an intern and getting some really, really, really difficult cases and some people who were particularly angry and, and the mean kind of angry and talking about it, over and over and over again with various different supervisors, talking about it with the people in my life in group supervision, journaling about it and trying different things. 
really understanding what was getting at it for me in particular, how it was bringing up my stuff allows me to enter into a situation that might otherwise escalate and I can come in calmly with curiosity. Now, honestly, don't really wish any of this experience on you. It is not pleasant. I really hope that uh, when people say that they are an expert in borderline personality disorder, they're talking about DBT and they are not talking about being a punching bag as so many of us have been over and over and over again. But I think, you know, part of that is the point that since it happens over and over again, if you put in the work, if you really do it right the right way, then this will become an art. And it is absolutely fascinating to watch the human experience unfold in front of your eyes. I think what's, you know, part of that fascinating experience is that when anybody gets angry, they respond in one of a few different ways. A lot of people might escalate, you know, think about people yelling and cursing. They might shut down. They might almost become not responsive. They might become mean, those kinds of people who just whip out insults and not in an angry way, not in the escalating way, but just really know where to hit you below the belt. Some people really get dysregulated emotionally and find it very hard to organize themselves. And I'm sure you've seen all of these different types. Now, of course, while these ways of responding to hurt or anger or whatever it is, usually more hurt, is not necessarily serving this person right now, the way that it was developed had to come from somewhere. And if we think about the way that people respond to their own emotional experience is usually the way that it was responded to them in their past. Say someone was really frustrated or angry. What was the response that they got in their past? What was the response that they got over and over and over again in their past is more important. And how did they then figure out how to navigate this emotion and how to communicate it? But what I think is really important for today is that this person sitting in front of you has developed this intricate response to hurt and anger. And they are expecting you to respond the same way that other people have always responded. Maybe not a conscious expectation, you know, a little bit of transference stuff going on, which is obviously a lot more than just how they feel toward you. It's it's an intricate topic. Maybe we won't go on that tangent today. But the idea is that unconsciously or consciously, but specifically unconsciously, they are expecting the same response. They are expecting you not to respect their thoughts and feelings. And so they are escalating their emotions for them in this moment. It is not simply enough for them to say, I feel really angry. Either they think that you'll dismiss it. A lot of times that has happened for people. They feel frustrated and it's dismissed. So for example, a kid wants something and the parent says, no, we're not having that now. And instead of sitting down and being like, oh, that's so frustrating for you. You really don't want to go to bed right now, or you really want the snack, or you really want to play outside. But right now it's bedtime. And that's so, so frustrating. Instead of saying something like that, perhaps the response, and again, it's the accumulation, the average of their experiences over time, Perhaps the response was, well, too bad because it's bedtime and maybe without the attitude. But the idea was your frustration. It's really a minor detail here. 
put it aside, please. Like this is just inconvenient for our life. So perhaps if it's dismissed, then they internalize that message and then dismiss it themselves. And obviously it doesn't go nowhere, but they sort of tell themselves, I shouldn't feel this way. And then it hangs out and only comes out when it becomes a bigger deal or just morphs itself into something else and gets expressed that way. Perhaps when the kid was really angry, it was met with the parent's anger. Perhaps it was met with blame and shame. And maybe they're really afraid that if they express themselves in the same way that they might be afraid that you might get angry with them or blame them or shame them or dismiss them. So some people might actually really temper their anger or their frustration or their sadness when it's directed toward you because they're afraid of what your reaction might be because the reaction has never been good and they're trying to protect themselves. Maybe the shame was too extensive and they shut down. Maybe they were ignored. And so they weren't heard. So if you think about somebody who becomes conniving, mean, or really aggressive, that is to say, I don't feel like the words I'm angry are sufficient. I don't feel like the words I'm hurt are sufficient. I'm going to have to act this out. I'm going to have to say this louder in a way that you actually hear. Again, because that's how they have been hurt in the past. If we think about their angry or hurt response as armor, as protection, we can probably understand a lot more about their history and what might be going on right now. But the only way to break the cycle is to ask them what's going on. They have never, ever gotten, oh, you're angry. Tell me about it. What made you angry? It, of course, gives you an opportunity to ask, you know, what did I do that made you angry? What did I do that hurt you? And, of course, if there is something that we actually did because we're human and we couldn't possibly know everything or be perfect, we have an opportunity to apologize, which is so profound. I mean, the same idea goes for parents. Like when your kids say something and you were actually in the wrong to say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake or I didn't mean to, I apologize. That apology is so, so profound. And so we have an opportunity to apologize if that's a thing. We have the opportunity to ask them, what did you need from me in that moment? If you know, and for them to be able to stop and think, huh, in this moment, what do I need? Do you think they ever stopped to think what they need? Probably not. They probably just shut down or lashed out. So what we're doing is slowing things way down. Almost like an instant replay. Almost like a slow-mo. And asking, okay, and when this particular thing happened, what did you feel? And when I said this, what was your reaction? What was it about what I said that made you angry? What was it about what I said that really hurt you? This allows them to start getting curious about their own anger and about the way that they express their anger or hurt. Because ultimately, when we think about the process of therapy, when we think about the process of healing, for those of you who are not therapists, but dietitians or psychiatrists or doctors, we think about the idea of allowing this person to identify their emotions, to organize their emotions, to soothe from their emotions and to be able to communicate their emotions. Because ultimately, when we think about an eating disorder or when we think about anyone who's sitting in front of us, 
that is the number one thing that's going on. And I can reference to some of the other episodes that I've done to talk about that in a little bit more depth. But the idea is if you can use your words and not your actions, not the disorders, not the behaviors to communicate what's going on internally, to communicate what's going on with your emotional experience, to be able to organize it that way and to be able to soothe that way, that is the ultimate goal because then none of the the symptoms serve that much of a function. But there's a few things that they have to learn. They have to learn, why am I angry? They have to learn, why am I shutting down? Why am I running away? Why am I saying I need to terminate? Because you didn't understand this thing. Why why am I saying that I can't meet with you for the next week when you said something that was really hard for me to hear? Why am I running? Why am I getting aggressive? Why, why, why? They've never even had a second to stop and ask why and be curious. So giving them that space, but also learning that they can trust people to be able to hear them when they just communicate with words and they don't escalate it and they don't have to get super loud, that they can learn that the other person will hear what they have to say. And so it's learning or just having an increased trust for other people that is really profoundly different from what it's been for them. Now, you might say, I've done this before and this has not ended well. And I believe you because that happens. It happens for all of us and it happens for many, many, many people. There are some people that won't be able to engage in a conversation like this. They might be too hurt. They might be too angry and they might not be ready to think about things this way. It might be too threatening. And even if you are the most even-tempered person in the entire world and the most curious and you do everything that you need to do to try to understand them, they may still escalate. They may still blame you. They may still terminate. And for us as clinicians to understand that that is not a thing that you did wrong. There are some people that at this point in their life cannot tolerate conversations like this. It is way too overwhelming and they aren't ready. Maybe they need 10 more years. Maybe they'll never be ready. But rest assured that if they continue to have experiences like this with people, as opposed to some of the gaslighting that they've experienced, then that number of years or that amount of time might decrease. And we don't know how somebody experienced an interaction with us after they've terminated, after they've you know, stormed out and said, you're the worst therapist that I've ever seen in my entire life. You only care about the money. I mean, fill in the blank. We all know. <laughs> I remember one time when I had a particularly hard session after somebody literally did that, stormed out and said that I shouldn't have a stake in this because I'm being paid. And that it doesn't matter what I want or need if he wants to cancel because I'm being paid. And I remember my supervisor going over the entire session with me and at the end said something like, this guy is not able to hear what you have to say. And maybe he needs like 10 more years in therapy before he can have this conversation which I guess for that person is a little scary, but for me felt reassuring because it wasn't that I was a money hungry, which I think it was an internet at the point at that point. So I wasn't even getting the money. It wasn't that I was a money hungry, selfish person for laying boundaries or for 
asking questions about what happens for him when he gets angry. I wasn't hurting him by laying a boundary and saying, this is the frame of therapy and this is how it goes and we need to meet. We can't just cancel or not show up. I wasn't being disrespectful by saying that. It was just that this person really couldn't hear it. And I think we have to know that for ourselves. You are not a bad clinician. You are not a selfish person. You're not greedy. You're not mean. This is how the person has adapted to their life circumstances in order to survive. And it is not a reflection on your clinical ability or your personality. Now, obviously, in those situations where someone gets really, really mean or obnoxious, it's hard. It's hard to hold your stance and to continue to be curious. It's really hard to endure something like that. And it's really hard to feel like a human punching bag. I think that when you have the capacity to hold on to that and not to respond in an angry way, hold it for supervision, hold it for therapy, hold it for, you know, when you talk to your colleagues, then you do yourself a massive favor because this is one of the aches and pains of growing as a clinician. These are the really, really tough cases that push anybody over the edge. And I think that if you are able to push through and seek out supervision, think about the nuances of what you did and how you responded. Maybe there was something in there, who knows? Maybe it was activating something about your own past, which is pretty likely for you to work it through in therapy about all that stuff that you explore. If you talk to colleagues, you get validation and the reassurance and listen to this podcast again, you're not terrible. Then you become one of those therapists that I think are just a cut above. I think the difference between really good therapy and really excellent therapy is a therapist who works on themselves and is able to engage in these almost impossible emotional situations, able to hold their ground and be curious. I mean, you are our unicorns. So I know that I always tell you, reach out. Let me know what you're thinking, but I'm pretty sure that 100% of you clinicians have had some sort of experience like this. And whether it's happening now or in the past, it's still stayed with you. It still hurts. Reach out to me. I think this is the kind of thing that the only thing to get us through is to seek out support. So let me know. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.